Times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today, uh, we're going to be fortunate. We're going to have Dave Canterbury, most recently known anyway for the uh, Discovery Series Dual Survival, uh, on with us. I'll be introducing him in just a minute. Before I do that, though, I do need to knock out our housekeeping. Item one, as always, is uh, making sure we take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help make sure that this show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backyard Food Production. What can I say about this uh, this product? I mean, it's just absolutely awesome. It's a simple, you know, hour-and-a-half DVD that goes over what one family's done to turn uh, a little place down in uh, central Texas into a real uh, – Total food production homestead, uh, a place that they could stay and they could live for years, honestly, I think, without living with 100% self-sufficiency. Uh, might be a little tough, but I think they definitely could do it with what they've set up. And just being able to look at everything that these people have done gives you so many ideas. It's a DVD I've probably watched about a dozen times now. Make sure you check that out, and I think you can definitely learn some stuff from it. You can adapt to any situation, whether you have a small farm or a small backyard in suburbia. Next up today is ShelfReliance.com. Note I did not say self, I said shelf reliance, like the shelves in your pantry. Absolutely the most innovative food storage items I've ever seen to, you know, live the credo of store what you eat and eat what you store and keep everything rotated and organized. I have a great video on the Harvest 72 where I reviewed it up at my uh, bug out location in Arkansas. I'll post a link to that video in today's show notes along with the link for Shelf Reliance. Check those guys out. I think you'll really be impressed with that product. I also want to remind you guys to always, you know, look to connect with us on our social media outlets. We have a YouTube channel. We have a Facebook channel. We, you know, we're on Twitter. Uh, connect with us by all those things. I want to remind you, I've been saying this a lot lately, just so nobody gets upset. I have stopped taking friend requests from people unless I know you, uh, because I'm doing everything now through my fan page. I'm trying to keep, I'll do a better job of keeping my personal and my business life separate. That doesn't mean I won't talk to you. If you post on my fan page, you're going to get a response from me. And, of course, you always have my personal email if you need to get in touch with me, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Not shunning anybody, just trying to keep those worlds separate. Um, last but not least, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Consider joining that. It comes out to 20 cents an episode. If you listen to this show and you think that was worth two dimes, uh, you know, then you should be part of the MSB and help support it. In return, you'll get just a buttload of free stuff. I mean, over $100 worth of free ebooks, discounts from 20 different vendors in the survival niche and preparedness niche, uh, everything from seed suppliers to uh, more traditional uh, long-term storage food suppliers, you name it. Uh, great discounts from everybody. Lifetime membership to uh, Safe Castles Discount Club. Uh, free membership at uh, Western Botanicals. Good stuff. And I just got an update put in there for you guys. A guy from BioBees.com, known as the Barefoot Beekeeper, uh, just donated a free ebook, 50 pages on how to build, manage, and design top bar beehives. 
I think that's just awesome that he's donated that uh, for the MSB. So if you're already a member, make sure you get in there and download that. I sent out an email yesterday. I think it went twice. Sorry about that, guys. Sometimes there's glitches with computers. Anyway, that's all wrapped up now, and we're ready to uh, introduce our guest. Uh, again, today we're fortunate to have Dave Canterbury with us uh, on the Survival Podcast. Dave, of course, most recently known, as I said, for his new Discovery series called Dual Survivor. We've had two episodes of that. Eight more this season, from my understanding. He's been doing that in conjunction with Cody Lundin. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a great deal today. But for those that don't know Dave, man, he's the real deal. I'd like to uh, give him a bit more of an introduction. Uh, Dave's a, a proud veteran. He served in the Army from 1981 to 1988. During that time, he, uh, he was trained and certified uh, in things such as he was part of the Airborne Corps. He was a sniper and a scout. Uh, he also served on a special reaction team. Over the years, this guy's done a ton of stuff. He ran a commercial reptile farm in Florida for a number of years. Uh, he was actually uh, the traditional archery national champion in 2006, so watch out if this guy's pointing a bow at you. Uh, he also created the Pathfinder system that we'll talk about of survival training. He now has over 500 students worldwide, and if I kept going, he's got a laundry list of additional things he's done about as long as my arm. Uh, so like I said, this guy is the real deal, not just somebody that Hollywood's put in front of you. Uh, and we're fortunate to have him here with us on the Survival po Podcast. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Hey, not a problem, Jack. Glad to be here, buddy. Uh, I'm really glad to have you on here. We had you on about a year ago, and hopefully we can expand on that. We've, we've, you've done a lot since then, and I do want to talk about your show, but I'm going to open with kind of uh, an oddball question. I, I, had, I knew a little bit about you, but since you've you know started doing the, the TV show, you've done a better job of putting up a media kit and a bio, and I, I started looking at all the stuff you did, and then there was one that just fascinated me because I'm like a, a complete freak when it comes to reptiles, uh, amphibians both, anything herpetology. And I noticed that you ran a reptile farm in Florida. What possessed you to do that? And what was that all about? What was it like? You know, I had started collecting reptiles. Um, I, I'm a herpetology freak myself. Um, anything that has to do with reptiles, amphibians, I'm, I'm into. And I started collecting these things, and I lived in Florida at the time. And I found out that there was kind of a market for some of this stuff, especially the stuff that you could catch, you know, locally down there because there's so many reptiles in Florida. And I kind of hooked up with another guy, and we kind of threw in together and set this farm up. Um, he was basically the financier, and I basically ran the business end of it and took care of the farm. And it just it just kind of blew up from there because of things like the pet industry and, and things like that. Sure. And I guess it fits right in with the survival mission to be running around the swamps looking for uh – Things like uh, maybe in the venomous world, the cottonmouths, and a lot of other really cool reptiles. I grew up in Florida myself, so I know what you're talking about. There's some really cool stuff uh, that you can find in those swamps down there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours, you know, asshole deep in swamp water <laughs> at night, catching, you know, everything from water moccasins to water snakes, you know, out on yeah. the roads, hunting corn snakes and, you know, rat snakes of different kinds, and, of course, you know, along with that, rattlesnakes. I sold rattlesnakes to venom research laboratories and things like that down in Florida. So I've had a lot of experience with dangerous reptiles, and at the same time, it gives you a lot of dirt time experience because you're sure. out there always at night hunting that stuff because they're nocturnal. Yeah, yeah, that's. I got to. I got to go to a different question because I could do an hour on this just because, uh, like you, I'm so big into that. And it's growing up down there, you're just taking me back to childhood memories, really. Especially when you start talking about water snakes and corn snakes; those things were everywhere down there. Oh, but, yeah. 
But before you were on national television with your new show on Discovery Channel, you became really well-known for your YouTube videos. You have over 300 of them. And can you tell us about what you learned as you put together that many videos, about how hard it is really, not just to train people, but like being your own cameraman, script developer, editor, etc. It's not easy. I, I've been doing some of it myself. Yesterday I actually went out and I did a quick video on uh, survival fishing. I went out with some monofilament line, uh, some uh, paracord, uh, some hooks, and that was it. No bait, nothing. I actually caught perch with flower blossoms, believe it or not. Did some jug fishing, and this was like a 90-minute little thing. It was like 102 degrees, and when I came home, all I wanted was a shower and a beer, and it was about 100 times harder than just doing it without the cameras. I mean, has that really been like your experience with all the work you've done on your own, and now, you know, even with a film crew, that filming stuff makes it harder? Yeah, it, filming stuff definitely makes it harder whether you're filming it yourself or whether somebody else is filming it for you because, number one, you have to – one of the things that I really tried hard to do after I shot a few YouTube videos, number one was listen to the comments that I got on the videos, especially the ones that were related to the videography and setup of the video, not necessarily the ones that were like, you know, oh, I'd do it this way or I'd do it that way or you're not doing it the right way. Sure. But more like, you know, I can hear wind in your camera. Or, you know, a better camera angle would do more justice to your video. Or mm -hmm. if you got a close-up shot on this or that, we could see it better. Those type of things, really my audience, which is now over 20,000 um, on YouTube, has taught me a lot about, you know, how to set videos up for YouTube. And I have a lot of people send me mails now even, you know, saying, hey, I'm getting ready to start shooting videos on YouTube, and I've watched your videos, and they're awesome. Can you tell me any tips or tricks? And the only thing I ever tell them usually not because I don't want to talk to people or because I don't have time to respond, is listen to your viewers. Because they'll it works. It works. Yeah, they'll tell you what you need to do. Because if you listen to them and you do what they want, you're going to get more viewers. They're you know, going to keep it, coming back and they're going to tell their friends. Don't you feel lucky to be living today? I mean, you were doing this stuff in the military back in the 80s. If you had been born 20 years earlier and it was 1985 today and you were at this point in your life with your school and all uh, and training people, you just wouldn't have had people to help you like that. You wouldn't have had the Internet to reach out to people. I mean, I actually feel sorry for people like, like us, and not just in survivalism, but in anything where they want to help people that kind of had the prime of their life 50 years ago and just didn't have this stuff. You know, I agree with that. I mean, guys, you know, I have all the respect in the world for guys like Ron Hood and, and some of the other fellows that are in the survival industry that are, that are, you know, getting to that point now where they're 20 years older than I am or 10 or 15 years older than I am, and they didn't have the technology level that we have now to be able to reach out to millions of people very quickly. I'm very, very lucky to be on national television because that gives an even bigger audience. But even things like YouTube and the Internet and the survival forums that are around now that weren't around then, is just a fantastic way to not only get your message out or get your teachings out to other people, it's a fantastic way of learning, number two, from each other. And also, it's a fantastic way of getting people into that don't really know where to go to what we love. You know, that's the first place they're going to go is the Internet. If somebody says, I want to learn how to start a bow drill fire, they're going to plug it into Google and they're going to find 100 places they can go to learn to start a bow drill fire. And that is the key element right there in the communication technology that we have nowadays. I think you're dead on, and I also think, like, I mean, we look at you having a national show now, and that's great, but you got that show because of the Internet. Without that medium, Discovery wouldn't even have known to find a guy like you. That I, I think that maybe your videos are part of what gave them the idea for the show. 
Um, I don't know that they gave him the idea for the show, but there is no doubt that I was discovered by Discovery, um, no pun intended there, on YouTube. Because I was told right off the bat when they called me, you know, we saw your videos on YouTube. Would you be interested in working with the Discovery Channel? So there's no doubt in my mind that YouTube is a powerful, powerful element, Um, not just for me, but for anybody Mm -hmm. who wants to either start a survival school or, you know, hopes to ever get to, you know, the lucky stage that I'm at right now. And I call it lucky because that's what it is. I mean, there's uh, 10 other guys out there, 100 other guys out there that are just as skilled as I am, if not more. Um, it just so happened that I had exactly what they were looking for, and I was at the right place at the right time. I was the combination they wanted with Cody Lundin, who I have more respect for than I can even tell you. You know, there's been a lot of questions about how Cody and I get along, really, and we get along great. That's just a fact. But we sure. respect each other's skills, you know, and that's just part of it. So, you know, I have to attribute all of that to the technology we have today, to the Internet, to YouTube, to things like Survival Podcast. You know, those are the things that put me in a position I'm in now. Yeah, and you were mentioning Cody there, and this new show, Dual Survivor, for those that haven't seen it yet, you and Cody Lundin are putting the various situations and scenarios, and you guys have to survive together. And the entire concept is that Cody is, you know, a bush hippie, but I, I mean that in a positive way. It's That's his angle, and that's the way he approaches things. And, and you are really, you know, you're a military guy. Your background uh, is, is a sledgehammer background. If something's in the way, I'll beat it down. I'll get around it. Uh, I think what you, when you said in the trailer is uh, ha- sometimes I have to fight Mother Nature. Uh, but the show contrasts the two approaches, and it presents some unique challenges. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, let me let me first address the, the part about fighting Mother Nature, because I got a lot of grief about that <laughs> statement. And I, I think what I was trying to say there is not exactly the way it came out of my mouth or the sure. way that it's, it's, it's received by a lot of people. Um, what I mean by Mother Nature being your enemy is not that Mother Nature doesn't provide everything you need because it absolutely does, but the fact of the matter is that the elements and Mother Nature are unforgiving. And if you don't have the respect for that or understand how to get around that or cope with that or adapt to it, you're screwed, period. Agreed. It will kill you every time, all the time. And that's what I mean by statements like that, yeah. no matter how they're received by other people. Um, as far as the show goes, you know, Cody and I, were are, are two different people, and I think that it goes even deeper than you know the military guy and the bush hippie. I, of course, know tons and tons of primitive skills, but Cody lives a primitive lifestyle. That's what he eats, mm-hmm. breathes, and shits is <laughs> primitive living. You know, and that's just the way it is. Whereas myself, you know, I'm the guy who, you know, okay, I have a I have a flashlight. I can use that parabolic lens to start a fire. Sure, you know. That's the kind of guy I am. I'm, I am the kind of guy who I know I'm going to have something on me. What can I use it for? What sure. can I do with this item other than its intended purpose? And that is, you know, the precedence of what I bring to the table, along with the, you know, we've got to get it done. We can't mess around about it. And that part is in direct contrast to Cody. Because co- Cody goes barefoot, he has to move slower. You know, like he says, it puts him closer to Mother Nature. It puts him closer to the earth. It also forces him to slow down so he doesn't step on everything in his path. Sure. So sure. that slowness is a very direct contrast to me, who's used to, you know, humping the ruck 20 miles and getting there in just a few hours. You know, I don't have time to mess around and take four days to get out of a scenario when I know I can throw an 80 pound ruck on my back and get out of it in a few hours. You made me you know, think so it's there's a direct contrast there. You made me think of something. I'm going to ask you this because you're, you're a traditional archery hunter. 
and you said something there that I just wonder if it because it hit me and it just made me think instantly. I, I, I'm with you, man. I'm not going out into British Columbia barefoot. I'm not going to do it. I'm not trucking through the Brazilian rainforest barefoot. There's too many things that put a hole in your foot, and you know you're you're in bad shape in a survival situation. But you said it makes them slow down. What do you think about after thinking about that hunting barefoot with traditional archery gear? Could there be some benefit to that? You know, I think there probably would be some benefit to that in that you're going to feel things a lot better with your feet if you're barefoot. Yeah. So obviously, you know, the stick that you cracked and spooked off that 10-point buck last week, maybe you'd have felt that. And it's not it's not just about going barefoot. It's yeah. a whole different yeah. thing with Cody. I mean, Cody walks completely differently than normal people walk. Um, one episode that we did, and I, I won't reveal too much about it, I had to actually track Cody for a certain distance because we were separated. Uh-huh. And it was very easy for me to track Cody, even if there had been 40 other people's footprints around. I can tell Cody's footprints as soon as I see him by the way he walks because he always steps with the front of his foot first and then drops the back foot. So instead is- of having a heel print and then a toe, you yeah. always have a toe and then a heel. So it's always deeper on the front than the back, and it's because of the way he walks barefooted to cushion the weight of his massive body when he yeah. walks. That's, 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 that's really neat, man. I, cause most people do, you walk, in fact, even in some of the, some of the training on, on moving through the bush, it, like in the military, they teach you kind of a, a heel to toe approach. And she, he's exactly correct. opposite. I knew he that's looked correct. different when you watched him walk, but I never picked up that that was why. That's, that's pretty neat. Now, in the first episode, it was interesting, and there was a lot of it, I think, was to set the stage about all the stuff we've been talking about. In episode two, I saw a lot more skill set explanations, getting off the glacier, repelling, creating harnesses and nets out of the few items you had. Cody's eel fishing with a sock, which I thought was pretty daggone cool that it worked. Going forward, I think we should probably expect to see more stuff that is that type of thing. Skill, Actually, how to do the skills, right? Yeah, what you're going to see, I mean, you have to understand that when a show first airs and you put two people together that are completely contrasting personalities, those people are going to have to get to know each other. Okay, and the first part of that getting to know each other is, um, you know, somebody has to be devil's advocate and say, why in the hell are you barefoot, dude? It's freaking snowing. It's January. <laughs> it's 30 degrees. What are you thinking? Right? And yeah. if I don't say that, then the guy sitting on the couch drinking his Budweiser, eating a steak, is yeah. like, why didn't he say anything about that guy being barefoot? Yeah, yeah. That's not normal. What, what's he thinking? You know? So you have to get that out of the way, and you have to get that knowing, get to know each other and understanding each other's skill sets because in a team situation, in any survival situation or an emergency when you are working with a team, or it doesn't matter if it's a firefight or what it is, you rely on each other's skill sets to know what your strengths and weaknesses are, and you have to play on that and rely on that. So just like in episode two, you know, where Cody knew I had rope experience, knew I had repelling experience, knew that I had, you know, more experience in that type of environment with that type of equipment, he relied on me heavily for that. And at the same time, if it comes down to, and I'm not a slouch at starting a primitive fire by any means, but if it comes down to a half-two situation, we've got to have primitive fire with sticks, I'm not wasting my time and calories. I'm going to say, Cody, get it done, buddy, because I know you can do it. Build a fire, and I'm going, to go out and I'm going to go out and club some, right? Right, exactly. I mean, that's just, it's playing on each other's strengths and weaknesses. And that you know, is That's teamwork. what it's all about. That, that is exactly the, the essence of teamwork, that you take each person, and they might be able to do everything okay, but the things that they're best at is where you focus your time and energy. And in a survival scenario, yeah, in a survival scenario, it's so important that you don't expend energy when you don't need to. 
it's it is absolutely one hundred percent in any survival situation. It is a calorie gain. Period. It's that simple. The more energy you expend, the more you have to replace, absolutely. and you have to replace it with food. Yeah. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to come by, especially yeah. in places like New Zealand where there's no native mammals. Yeah, that was that was kind of a tough thing. I saw you guys coming down there. That was a big ass eel he caught. You know, and that was a very good size eel, and there was a lot of meat on it. Yeah. And, and if you were a bass fisherman, you would have said it was a dink. Really? Because there's eels in there four times that size. Wow. I couldn't believe what he caught so, out of the sock. Well, you know, that's the <laughs> traditional Maori culture. You know, that's that's the way they do things. You know, they those eel, because they have those reverse teeth, yeah, you know, like whatever they bite into, they're going to catch. They're gonna yeah. gra- they don't let go. They're like pit bulls. They yeah. don't let go of anything they grab. So... You know, I've even heard of, you know, from local experts in that area of catching eel on what they call a stink sock, just taking their sock off after they wore it all day inside of a boot when it smells like a rotten-ass foot, yeah. and throwing it in there, and the eels bite on it because wow. it stinks. Wow. <laughs> Talking about you know? catching and with they, no bait. That's that's pretty cool. Exactly. You know, and they call that a stink sock. You know, of course, yeah. Cody put bait in there just to, just to make, you know, things happen, but... <laughs> The, those eels will eat just about anything, and that's a good thing to know in a survival situation. You know, we were talking about the progression of the show and you guys getting to know each other. I'm starting to see a lot of trust, just the contrast between one and two, the first two episodes, of trust developing between you two guys. I think you're going to see a lot more of that as the show continues. Um, I think you're going to see a whole lot of that um, in episode three, which airs on Friday night, 10 o'clock, obviously. Um, and like I said, you know, episode one is a getting to know each other period, and episode two and episode three and on down the line, you get to know what each other's strengths and weaknesses are. And you'll see that in episodes, you know, that are more desert-like or arid environments, I'm going to be leaning on Cody every step of the way because it's not my experience area. When we get in areas of jungle and swamp, it's going to be a little bit the other way around. Um, and it's, it's all about exactly that. It's all about teamwork, but it's all about getting to know each other and understanding what our strengths and weaknesses are. And that's where the teamwork and the concept of dual survival works perfect. So Friday you got the next episode on Discovery at 10, um, and that's actually tomorrow night. Um, that's you, uh, night after, yeah, tomorrow. It'll be tomorrow night because we're going to air this tomorrow. So uh, <laughs> time time delays there. But uh, that. You're right. where are you guys going to be in that episode? Can you give us any kind of sneak peek? Are you allowed to tell us any kind of like? Uh, well, they've already played commercials for it, so I can at least tell you that much. Okay. Because um, they played commercials for it last week during episode two. It's it, it is in the it is in Belize. Um, it is a very very. Good episode. It's a very rugged episode. It has a lot of terrain changes. It has a pretty a lot of harsh environments. Um, the basis of the episode begins with a cave diving accident, where you know adventure adventure people now and eco tourists cave diving has become a big thing. But you know almost twenty people a year die worldwide in cave diving accidents because they run out of air and they've gotten lost under the water, mm. or they you know or things happen like the premise of this show tomorrow night where. You know, the guy's running out of air. He finds an air pocket. He pops up in an air pocket, and it's in the middle of a cavern system, and now he has no air to get out, so he's got to climb out of the water and Ooh. figure out what he's going to do. Talk about a scared shitless thing. I mean, that's uh, there's a lot of like situations that, that I don't mind being in. Confined like that would be really freaking tough to deal with. And uh, you guys have kind of gone all around the world. You're done filming season one. You did ten episodes for the first season. 
And in prep for each episode, you guys get time like either with like local experts or indigenous people. Can you tell us a bit about what that's like? Um, yeah, we do get some time with local people. And the reason for that is obviously, you know, Cody and I are both United States type experts as far as that goes. I mean, most of our survival knowledge is based in the United States. Um, I do have quite a bit of jungle experience from when I was in the military in the eighties in Central America, obviously. Um, so that gives me a little bit of advantage in those type environments. But at the same time, nobody knows. You know, I couldn't walk into the jungle tomorrow, had this been episode one, and say, you know, this is this plant, this is this plant, sure. this will kill you, you can eat this one. Nobody knows that. So without that time with a local expert to kind of get to know those things, you can't educate people properly. Absolutely. You know, I understand what it is to build shelter. I understand what it is to have to build fire. I understand that I have to look for food, whether it be, you know, lizard, monkey, whatever it is. But as far as educating people to the surroundings, to the local cultures, which is one of the big things with this show that we've really, really tried to uh, stay with, is we always try to show some things from the local culture, just like Cody catching that eel. Yeah. You know, that's a, a traditional Maori way of fishing and a, a, a traditional Maori dish. And we have tried to stick with that through every episode, even if they're stateside. You know, yeah. this is how the locals do it. Because if you don't have that local tribal knowledge, then your chances have been cut, you know, at best in half. Agreed. Agreed. And I think you probably, it's probably very, um, I don't know how, how to describe it, maybe uh, uh, horizon expanding to, to talk to people that live that life in those places and see things outside. I think every human being, to a degree, we live in kind of a fishbowl. We have this area that we're surrounded by. Could be comfortable, could be uncomfortable, but we're in that area. And when we talk to these people in these other cultures, we, we, we kind of shrink the earth a little bit, and we start to see things through another person's eyes. And in survival, uh, specifically, when you see through another person's eyes, you get new information, and, and that gives you an edge. You know, I, I have to agree with that 100%, and there's been a lot of eye-opening experiences for me, you know, as far as my own learnings in survival, not only from being with Cody because we think so different about some things, but the local cultures in general and how they live every day. Because some of these cultures, you know, what we call survival is what they call daily living. Sure. You know, there's no question about that in my mind, especially, you know, in some of these third-world countries where they're very poor, have very little resources, you know, as far as, I mean, they don't have the Walmart down the street. So yeah. they have to live indigenously and self-sustainingly off of what they have. And by learning how they do that, it gives you a big advantage when you're in a survival situation because you're basically doing what they do every day, but it opens your eyes to a lot of things. And opening your eyes to the culture is a big thing for me, too, because understanding how they think and how they relate to things and why they do the things they do gives you a lot of clues because those people are smart enough. The things that we talk about in survival, like calorie savings and hydration and things of that nature, these people live that every single day. Yeah. So they figured out how to do it the most efficient way to not expend those calories, to not dehydrate themselves. And when you learn those things from indigenous cultures, it's a very, very enlightening experience. It must be. I'm envious of of all things, of probably that more than anything else with what you're doing now, that you get to talk to these people. And you mentioned the thing there about you know Walmart be, not being around the corner. A lot of people that listen to the Survival Podcast, we prepare for the fact that Walmart might not be available, where these people live where they don't even know what it is. 
That's exactly and, right. They and everything know. else that goes with that culture, they don't even know it, right? They just they know they know the earth and they know what it what it what's available and they know how to to bend it and they've learned it through generations, hand down, taught very much the way you teach people by by demonstration. That's exactly right. I, I, you're exactly right about that, Jack, and it's an amazing thing to see. Okay, um, can you tell us, like, during this season as you traveled around, was there like one place that was really the toughest? to endure or where you were maybe the most cold and miserable or the most hot and miserable or in an intimidating situation? Was there like one place that sticks out this year, the place that, you know, when you were done, you were glad to be done with that one? You know, really there's, there's actually been two places um, and for two different reasons, but the, the, the fact that I live in the Eastern woodlands and I've lived, you know, either in the woodlands or the swamp my whole life, pretty much um, as have you, um, you take a lot of things for granted. One of the things that you take for granted very easily is water because it's everywhere. Yep. So when you get stuck in a desert environment, it wakes you up very quickly to, I can't walk 500 yards to the creek. Correct. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to be there. Um, what am I going to do to find water? So environments that are deserty have awakened me to a lot of things, um, because I had virtually zero desert experience. Um, you know, other than, you know, some arid regions of southern Colorado before this show started. The other thing that was tough for me, again, because of the area that I live in and the area that I grew up in and the areas I've been in, even in the military, the food factor in New Zealand of not having one native mammal, not yeah. one native mammal, that's a scary thought. I mean, I can walk out and whack a rabbit any day of the week where I live. Yeah. You know, I can, as you know, in Florida, you can walk out in the swamp and... <laughs> You could eat for days and days and days without even thinking about it. Yeah, you know, everything could... from crayfish to alligators to snakes to hogs to turkey—they're everywhere down there. The deer, but it's not like that in New Zealand because there are none. Yeah, if Florida, so now, Florida like, from you know, the, what are we going to do? Florida from the Panhandle to Miami, everything in there, swampland or, or otherwise. You're right. You could go out if you can't survive there as far as food. You're done anywhere somebody puts you. You really are. There's, exactly. there's, and, and I think the other thing that, that that got me the first time I was any kind of place like you described in the desert environment is the lack of shade. There's oh, yeah. the sun and it's all freaking day long. And unless yeah, you find definitely. a rock, you're 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 suffering through it. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the desert is definitely a full-on experience, and I have a lot of respect for Cody just for the sheer fact that he teaches in that environment. And lives in that environment because it's brutal. There's absolutely no question about it. Deserts are a brutal environment to try to survive in. And for me, you know, if I had to say there's one environment that I wouldn't want to have to survive in or I would not want to teach in all the time, it would be the desert. Yeah. Because my methodology of survival really is more about, you know, the pathfinder system in general is more related to food than anything else for certain reasons, but it's related to you know, hunting and gathering meat sources, and that's hard to do in environments where you know the easiest animal to catch is a pack rat. Yeah, or a scorpion. The, or a scorpion. You know, that's that's <laughs> tough. You know, that's tough. You know, I, I could tell there weren't a lot of things to eat in New Zealand when you were willing to eat the hoo hoo grubs. <laughs> <laughs> that's not you know, Dave's forte, man. You know. No, I'm not much of a bug eater, that's for sure. But, you know, in a survival situation, you do what you have to do. You sure. eat what you have to eat. 
But at the same time, you know, that goes against everything I teach because I try to teach people you don't have to eat stuff like that. Yeah. You shouldn't have to eat stuff like that. Because what happens is, you know, the guy who has no no survival experience and doesn't eat bugs and gets stuck in an emergency situation, it's a whole lot harder for him to justify in his own mind eating a bug than it is to justify eating a bunny rabbit. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely. Just a fact. It's just a fact. Yeah, you know? yeah. So if he knows how to secure meat sources and he gets in a survival situation, he's going to be a whole lot more comfortable with that. Now, I mean, if you want to be a bug eater and you get used to eating bugs, <laughs> then you're probably in good shape. But I think bugs are bait, you know. Bugs yeah. are bait to catch bigger animals with more protein and more fat. You know, it would take, you know, 100 hoo-hoo grubs to equal a rabbit, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. I'd spend less energy getting one rabbit than I would digging around and trying to find 100 hoo-hoo grubs. You know, so that's just my philosophy. But if it's all there is to eat, you got to eat it. Grub eating makes me think of kind of one of the pioneers in this niche as far as taking it to television, and, and that being Les Stroud, right? And he went out and did stuff on his own with his own camera gear and all. And from what we talked about earlier, that's got to be tough. I mean, I've got a new respect for him just from doing an audio show by myself. To, to do something like that, uh, it's really pretty amazing. But there was one episode, I, I don't remember what season or whatever, but he was on this island, like a desert island. Uh, but he had plenty to eat. There was lots of fresh water, and he just kind of adapted to the environment. At the end of that episode, you know, conversely with what we were just talking about, he's like, I wouldn't mind if I had to stay here a few more days. Were there any places you went this season where you kind of felt like that? Like, I could hang out here, maybe not for another month, but for a couple more days, I could actually just sit down, take this in, and enjoy this. You know, <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, and I won't. I won't give away the exact episode location, but I will tell you it was a swamp. Sure. And obviously we just talked about that. Yeah. You know, we talked about swamps. The food is so plentiful that if you go hungry, you deserve to die. I yeah. Mean, it's just the way it is. You know, the problems down there become fire because everything's usually wet. Sure. But food should never be an issue, and neither should water in an area like that. Yeah. Yeah, so, and it is. Yeah. And when we shot an episode in the swamp, I was very, very comfortable. Yeah, I could imagine that. I figured that would be the case. So we'll have to keep an eye out for that one and see if everybody can pick out which one it is. Um, <laughs> I bet we'll figure it out when we see it. But you got a book coming out soon, too. Can you tell folks about that? Um, yeah, I do have a book coming out. It's supposed to release June the 30th, uh, pending a few uh, legal approvals. But um, it is called The Pathfinder System, The Common Man's Guide to Survivability. And basically it goes into a lot of what we're talking about. I mean, it teaches the common person, you know, not the survivalist, the person who, you know, doesn't go out in the woods and practice the things we practice, the very simple and easy concepts that if they wrap their head around that, will understand what they have to do to make themselves more comfortable in a shitty situation. Sure. And, and that's all around this Pathfinder system you developed. When, I remember the first time I saw you talk on that, the way you broke it down into modules and component parts. Can you tell people exactly what the Pathfinder system is, why you developed it, and why you think it's such a good system for the average person, like you said, that's in a shitty situation that wants to make it less shitty? Well, you know, I think that the Pathfinder system, what I did was, you know, I tried to, number one, I tried to go through indigenous cultures, across time, including ours, and history, and look at the different aspects of the way people did things in different eras of time, 
and threw out the things that didn't work and kept the things that have sustained themselves through time, um, picked out certain primitive skills that weren't too difficult to understand and learn, didn't require necessarily exacting specialized material. And I put that together and broke things down into a system like you talked about. And the precedence of the whole thing is becomes in Pathfinder 3 becomes very important, and it will be apparent in the book, that if you look at things and break them down to their most rudimentary elements, and I call that, you know, the rule of threes in natural order. If you can break everything down to three main elements, an example of that would be the triangle of fire, you know, oxygen, mm-hmm. fuel, and combustion. Um, if you break things down to their simplest elements and pick three key elements that will enable this to happen or not happen, and you understand that, then it makes it very simple for the layperson or anyone to say, okay, now I get it. Now, if I think about, you know, okay, I'm going to build my shelter, and I have to think about radiation, conduction, and convection. If I lay against this cold rock, it's going to transfer to me, and I'm going to freeze my ass off. Mm-hmm. If I lay on the ground, the same thing. If I stand out here without building a shelter exposed to 40-mile-an-hour winds and it's 20 degrees outside, I'm <laughs> going to freeze my ass off from convective breeze. On the other hand, if my clothes are wet because they're cotton and I've been sweating in the summertime, then the convective breeze is going to cool me down. And if I stand out in the sun like a lizard, I'm going to get warm. If I sit by the fire, I'm going to get warm from the radiant heat. Those are the things, the simple concepts, that if you can wrap your head around those and understand them, they'll help you survive. And that's what I teach in this book. And I have a question that came in on Facebook uh, while we were doing this, actually. Uh, Folks want to know, do you still run your school in Ohio, or are you now a full-time Hollywood guy? No, absolutely. We We have a lot of classes that are that are actually hands-on classes that are scheduled for the summer and this fall, um, and and the network will work around those classes if we start filming before that. Um, I have a lot of seminars put together. I have a, a large class in the Pacific Northwest in September that's going to be taught on the Quinault Indian Reservation um, in the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, that I arranged that contact during uh, this last year to teach on that reservation, and I also have a class in. July in the Atlantic Northeast up in the Massachusetts, New Hampshire area uh, to teach a class. And I'm trying to move things around a little bit so that if people can't just travel to Ohio because it's too far or not in their budget, they can at least travel to another location, maybe one day have a class, and learn what they want to learn from me and from the other instructors that I bring with me to these classes. And we tried to keep, you know, Everybody thinks that, you know, oh, Hollywood, Hollywood, his prices are going to go up. No. I, I kept my prices exactly where they've been all along because I want people to be able to learn and enjoy this stuff. And I don't think that my time is worth any more than it was last year. And I don't think the knowledge is worth any more than it was last year. You know, Dave, the re- I think part of the reason you feel that way is, and I saw this way before you got your, your crack on Discovery with your videos, you're actually passionate about, teaching this stuff to people you, you didn't do this just because it was a good business model you, you your your past is different than mine but similar in that you did so many different things i look at your your biography and it's like this 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 and this and there's always been some of that survivalism component reptile farm you're out in the jungle collecting reptiles but it was a it was a business model on reptiles and then you hit kind of this point where you started doing this and then you just see that's what you've done forward and you haven't ever looked back People matter to you, and I can see that. Well, you know, I do love to teach, Jack. There's no question about that. But, you know, another component of that whole thing becomes the fact that 
I don't forget where I come from. I remember when I worked in a factory on a, on a line, on an automotive assembly line. I remember when I dug ditches in Florida for a living and roofed houses and mopped hot tar for $10 an hour. And the common man is who I want to gear things toward because those are the guys that need to learn this kind of stuff and want to learn this stuff and need to be able to get out and enjoy it. And they can't afford, you know, to pay $1,800 for a caribou run in Alaska. But maybe sure. they can afford 300 bucks to go to a five-day training seminar that will get them out in the woods. You know, so I try to cater everything toward the common the common man. I mean, that's what I'm all about. I'm all about the common, everyday guy. I'm not catering, not that I wouldn't take their business, but I'm not catering yeah. to doctors and lawyers. Sure. I'm catering to factory workers and normal guys. Those are the guys that I cater to, and I'm not going to change from that because I think that's America, and I'm really big on that. Because I'm a soldier, because I believe in it, you know, because I believe in this nation, that's the kind of people that I cater to. I cater to the common guy and the kid. You know, I remember when you came up with the concept of the slingbow, where you took the wrist rocket slingshot and made it into an archery tool. And I remember people throwing stuff at you, trying to basically try to uh, productize that into something, and you basically said, screw that. This is something anybody can build. Let's not make it complicated. Let's just keep it out there and let people develop it and improve it themselves. And I remember you telling me directly that somebody had uh, contacted you and said their kid had built one and went out the day they created it and came back with two rabbits. You said that's what it's all about. That is exactly what it's all about right there. From the pocket fishing kit, you know, to the swing bow, to, you know, blow guns made out of PVC pipe. I mean, it's all about... You know, what can common people do with common items to affect their survivability and have a good time in the wild, in the nature? That's what it's all about. You know, if if survival becomes a pain in your ass, then you don't care anything about it anymore. But if survival, if survival becomes something that's fun because you enjoy doing it, you like going out and practicing how to make fires, you like going out and sleeping in the woods, you like going out and hunting your own food, then when the time comes that you're in that emergency situation, it is no longer survival. It's self-reliance, and that's what it's all about. That's, that's awesome. Um, I also um, I, I had Ron Hood on recently. You mentioned him earlier, and we were talking about something I'd like to get your thoughts on. There's, there's a certain amount of, of humbleness and humility that you retain, and I, I don't say that to kiss your ass or anything. That's something I've seen in like everybody that's in this niche, whether they're on TV and YouTube or they're just a traditionalist that you know, you'd have to, to search out to find in the first place. That exists. Every, you know, not the guy that shows up today and he's an expert and tomorrow he's gone, but everybody that sticks around has that, that humility and that humbleness. You were talking about things like trying to get a fire started in uh, the swamps and how t- sometimes everything's wet and it just doesn't work. To me, the fact that every once in a while, no matter how much of an expert you are when you do this stuff, Mother Nature kiss, kicks your ass. That's part of what keeps us humble because we know no matter how much we learn, no matter how many skills we gain, we still are just small on the planet, and there's always a potential for mistake. There's always a per, 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 uh, potential that we can lose. And, and I think that's what makes maybe people that teach in this world a little bit different than maybe a lot of other things like, you know, a computer programmer or, or what have you. You know, I'd have to say that you're right about that, Jack, and I think that a lot of that comes down to exactly what you said of just understanding that, you know, what works today might not work tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the variables may be different, and you don't know why it didn't work, but it didn't work. And that keeps you all the time wanting to learn more. And anybody 
that would, you know, get in front of anybody and say, I'm a survival expert is, is crazy. Those guys, <laughs> that's somebody who's a fake, you know, yeah. I'm a survival student, you know, or yeah. I know a lot about can teach them stuff, but I learn stuff every day. Those are the guys that get it because yeah. you're never going to be a survival expert because you can't beat mother nature. You can fight her. You can work with her. You can get around her, but you can't beat her. And that's what survival is all about is what mother nature gives you to work with, what she dishes out with to you to give you hell and how you cope with that is what survival is all about. And anybody who thinks that they can beat mother nature, and be the expert in every situation and never fail has got another thing coming in this business. And I think that's exactly, like you said, what keeps people in this business so humble because they understand that from experience. You said something else there that was cool is you're, you might be a survival student, but you're not an expert. And like that was personified in your videos. I remember, again, watching your videos before you, you, know, you, you became nationally known and noticing one very important thing in your intro. What it says at the end of the intro before the video starts is let's learn together. Yeah, I, I, that's my motto to this day. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the really exciting things for me, getting this opportunity with the Discovery Channel, was not only the fact that we were going to get to learn from local experts, but that I was going to get to learn from Cody Lundin. Not to say that Cody Lundin is any better or any worse than I am, but the fact is, he thinks differently than I do, and he does have a ton of knowledge. So if I can if I can soak that up like a sponge while we're together, whether it's forced to be together or not, then that's a huge learning tool for me. And I hope that there's things that I do differently than he does that he's taking something away from. So while we're partners in this and we are surviving together, as it says in the commercial, we are learning together, and that is a big factor. I, I think teaching is important, too. I, I was just talking today uh, with someone, and I said that I think you never really learn something until you turn around and teach it. You know, I think that has a lot of merit, Jack, because I think you can – a lot of people have a tendency to fudge things privately. And I don't know how to explain that other than to say that, you know – Maybe you're in the wild and you're trying to start a, a bow drill fire and you try and you try and you try and it doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and finally you break out the bank and say, ah, screw it. Yeah. I had a coal. I couldn't blow it in the fire, but I had coal. You know, or ah, it didn't work today, but it worked yesterday. I'll just use my lighter. Yeah. But if you have to teach that to someone else time and time and time again, then you force yourself into a situation of doing it again and again and again, whether it works or not. You know, and that helps you to become a better student of survival, and it gives you a lot more knowledge. I mean, I did a video not very long before I had to quit making videos on YouTube called Bad Day at the Office, and that video was all about going out into a personal space in the woods and just pulling whatever I could find to try to start a primitive fire with it. And I went through six, eight, ten spindles and five or six different fireboards and different combinations of spindles and fireboards, and it took me about nine hours to get one fire. Wow. But it was honest, it was real, it showed failure, it showed learning, and that is what it's all about. But I was forcing myself to do that because I was teaching the audience. So while you force yourself into a teaching situation, as you said, you force yourself to learn. 
That's awesome. That's that's pretty insightful. The other thing I've noticed about you, and I think maybe people that would just see your headshots or whatever and this this tough army guy look maybe wouldn't realize is how important it is for you that we're teaching these skills to children. You know, I I got to tell you, man, I'll be honest with you, I just got a phone call yesterday. I've got a very busy schedule, you know, not because I'm this great famous person, but just because that goes along with it. Um, and I got a call yesterday from a guy who was in charge of a youth camp in northern Ohio, and he's like, man, I know this is really short notice, but I've watched a lot of your YouTube videos, and I'd be very interested in having you come up for a day to teach some kids at a youth camp just a day of survival training. I said, well, how old are the kids? He said, well, they're from 12 to 16 years old, you know, and he's like, we don't have a lot of money, and, you know, but we really want to get you up there. I was like, dude, look, you tell me what you can afford, and I'll do it for that no matter what it is, and I'll be there. And it was two days' notice. I don't that, care. That's you pretty know, if awesome. If it comes to teaching a kid something, I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah, because those are the ones that are going to grow up and make it part of their life, and they're going to keep it going. And I think that's, that's exactly right. really important. On, an, on another note, you have a pretty big thing happening in your life. You want to share what that is? Uh, the fact that I'm getting married tomorrow, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, and that'll be actually the day everybody's hearing this. <laughs> Dave's getting married. So, lady, yeah, that's sorry, Dave is off the market. Congratulations. Yeah, Dave, Dave is getting married. Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, I'm, I'm really happy about that. I've been with, I've been with this woman for eight years. Um, it took me eight years to talk her into marrying me. <laughs> but she put up for this long, so I guess she can put up with me all the way. Uh, so are you guys yeah, gonna, I'm very, very happy about that and excited about it. Are you guys going to honeymoon in the middle of a, a desert uh, making bow, bow drill fires? or? You know, i got to tell you, man, I've got such an understanding woman that we had all these plans for honeymoon this, honeymoon that, we're going to go here, we're going to go there. And it, because of my heavy schedule, and because of things that are going on and last-minute phone calls about youth camps and last-minute phone calls about radio shows, not not survival podcasts, but other radio shows, um, she just said, you know what, you're marrying me, that's all I care about. We'll go somewhere and do something no matter where you have to go. That's awesome. And that's the reason I'm marrying her, because yeah. she's been the most supportive thing in my life, you know, for the last eight years. And without her, I probably couldn't have done the things I've done, because she's put up with the time and the dirt time that I've spent. And a lot of women won't put up with that. Dude, that could be a whole other book, How to Find a Wife That Will Tolerate Your Survival Lifestyle by Dave Canterbury. <laughs> You're probably correct about that. I guess. Yeah. I'd buy it. I'd buy it. Hey, uh, you also have, you mentioned all these different events you have coming. You got one big one coming up uh, at, at the end of July, beginning of August, that right around that time frame. And I understand you just, it was sold out. You just moved. You've got some additional space now. Or is that gone already? Um, yeah, no, what happened is we do still have some space for that, Jack. Um, the Pathfinder Gathering, which is an annual event, um, it's basically open to the public as long as they pay the entry fee, which is very minimal. It's $200 for uh, uh, initially a four-day event of survival instruction. Um, it is a sponsored event that's sponsored by many, many big companies, including John McCann's company, uh, including Topps Knife Company, Hedgehog Leatherworks, um, American Cookery and Survival. There's a lot of them, and I don't want to try to name them all because I'll forget somebody and I don't want to look sure. like an ass uh, because it wouldn't be on purpose. But we have, you know, six to ten heavy sponsors of this event. And the money that people are paying to get into this event really 
is, I mean, they're going to get that much in free giveaways, probably very much like the Survival Podcast subscription. Um, but the important thing to me was to get as many people who could afford to travel to this event and wanted to come to this event as we could get in there. We, we at first thought that we'd just do 100 folks because we had a very small venue and we didn't think we'd get more than 100 people in there. I wanted to make sure we had that survival instructor and student one-on-one going on and, and spread the wealth. And we got a bigger venue. We had more instructors come in, you know, at later dates. We had more sponsors come in at later dates. And because we decided we could open up for 50 more tickets, I think we have around 40 left of those 50. We just opened that up a few days ago. Um, we have a wonderful, wonderful venue. I had a meeting with the Ohio State Parks Department yesterday, and they are absolutely bending over backwards to give us everything that we need to make this event successful and give this event a home. That's awesome, Dave, and I wish you well with uh, that event. I bet you it's going to go off really great. Um, in fact, I wanted to be there, but I've got another commitment that I can't break, so uh, I'm not able to be there. But, folks, I'll tell you what, if you uh, if you could get there, I think this would be a great place for you guys to go. And if people want to find out more about your book, the event, your school, connecting with you on Facebook, your YouTube channel, all of that, they can do that at your website, which is? www.wildernessoutfittersarchery.com. And Dual Survivor airs on Discovery on Friday nights at? Dual Survival airs uh, every Friday night at 10 o'clock on the Discovery Channel. Just a heads up in case someone hasn't seen the schedule. Um, Fourth of July weekend, which is the week after this one airs, I believe, they're playing the first three shows back-to-back instead of airing a new episode. You know, figuring that some people will be gone, you know, on vacation and things like that. Instead of airing a new episode that week, they're going to air the first three back-to-back that week, and then they're going to follow it up with a new episode the next week. Awesome. Well, at least they didn't do what they did to me with uh, the miniseries V, where they played the four, first four episodes and then didn't play the fifth episode for nine months. Uh, so I'm glad oh, they man. didn't do that to you that back in her ratings. But great, man. I, I've loved having you on. If you have any, any additional things you'd like to share, uh, I'll give you the last word on that before I close up. You know, Jack, I think you got it covered, man. I don't think I've ever been in a more thorough interview in my life. All right, man. Well, I wanted people to get to know the real Dave Canterbury and realize, you know, who you really are and, and the things that really make you tick. Because uh, for a lot of folks that maybe didn't uh, hear you the first time around, they just know you from TV. And I know you're really an awesome guy, and I wanted people to be able to see that. So thank you again for being here today. I appreciate that, Jack. And you're welcome at my event anytime, all the time, brother. So I know you got to come in with this time. But next time around, we may have two next year. We haven't decided yet, yeah. and you're more than welcome. Well, we'll do some stuff together, I guarantee you that. And with that, folks, uh, I am going to wrap up. I, I hope the one biggest thing you took away from the interview today is how important it is to be teaching these traditional skills uh, and even how to use new technology for the traditional skills to our children. Our kids are the ones that are going to go out there, and they're going to keep on doing it. And uh, long after we're gone, our legacy lives in them. So make sure you're teaching your kids these, school, these uh, skills. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico and Dave Canterbury today uh, with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way.
nobody up there cares. They're living for today.